Our scripture today is from Psalms 1, 1 through 6 and 2, 12. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of, of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who, are, all who take refuge in him are happy. Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. If I haven't met you, my name is John Fox. I have a lot of humming going on right now. I'm just going to say everything I think today. That's what I'm going to do for this sermon. Prepare yourself. Um, yeah, good to be with you. I'm the administrative pastor of the church. Aaron is out, our normal preaching pastor, doing some relief preaching over in, in uh, Marysville, in Mercy Fellowship. So pray for him in a second here. And uh, today, just as we begin, we're going to be we're going to be finishing up our summer in the Psalms series. So this is the last one, and it's kind of fun that I get to do the last one because I'm going to be uh, preaching a sermon that argues there are two things you need to know before you go into the Psalms. So uh, I told Aaron, and he was fine with it. So that's fine. Uh, but yeah, Psalm Psalm one and two together is what we're going to be taking today. And the emphasis is really on the blessed life or the happy life. I may get the, uh, the, the word um, changed over a few times because I memorized uh, this psalm in a different version, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go back and forth. And that's really uh, what we'll be talking about is the blessed life. And rather than beginning with ideas about uh, blessedness, you know, hashtag blessed, movement or happiness, talking about it. Uh, We're just going to be digging into these two psalms and then figuring out what God says about happiness or blessedness and going from there. So let me uh, pray for us and we'll get going. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you would make us like mighty oak trees by it, people of substance, permanence, stable, in a shifting age and culture. Lord, I pray that as we look at these two psalms, we would experience them as well. And if you're up for it, I would just ask that you take a moment and, and pray now as well. Pray that the Lord would speak to you and you'd get to meet with him in a special way this morning. Father, we love you. I thank you for your word in your son's name. Amen. So we begin this morning with a bit of a pause, a bit of silence, and maybe you really like it because you don't have a whole lot of silence in your life. I'm also guessing 
that you do not like it, and it makes you feel awkward. In fact, if I were to just stop talking right now, you would feel very awkward. Uh, some of you might like it, some weirdos out there. <laughs> you like the awkward stuff. But Psalm 1 really begins that way. It makes us slow down. And uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are, as many commentators have said, the gates to the Psalms. That is, when you're thinking about the Psalms and you start to enter them and sing them and pray them, as believers have done for millennia, then what you've got to do is follow the instruction of the first two Psalms. And in our Western world, we don't often hear that, but that's very typical in a Jewish mindset to begin with the two Psalms, providing a worldview, in a sense, for you to begin with the whole Psalms. Now, I don't think that if you don't know these two things that I'm going to argue for, that uh, you, you can't benefit from the Psalms at all, or you've been missing out your whole life, and now you're actually going to read the Psalms correctly. Um, rather, that these two things that are represented in each of the first Psalms are, are themes that we can pull on throughout the whole scriptures that, um, that we see occur again and again, and especially in the life of Jesus. And so, as we begin here, I just want to note that Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, is poetry. It's a different genre, and we've been in that, but it, it's so different than our everyday language. It's not utilitarian. It is, it is different. It's poetry. And Eugene Peterson, on his little book on the Psalms, which is fantastic, one of the top five books I've ever read, I would say, says this about it. He says, poetry is language used with personal intensity. Poetry grabs for the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. I just got away with saying intestines on Sunday morning. But as Peterson's talking about it, he's saying there's, there's something about poetry, in particular there's something about the Psalms that as you read it, 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 it grabs you. And maybe one psalm doesn't, but then you turn to the next and you see a psalmist cry out in despair, or you see one shout with jubilation, and you resonate with that because you feel it at the moment. Psalms for us give us a, a window into what we are actually feeling and an expression to be able to uh, speak with God about it as well. And so Psalm 1 and 2 are no exceptions here. Psalm 1 is going to really focus on meditation. That's the first thing that you need to do to enter the Psalms. Psalm 2 focuses on adoration. And, and when you take both of those things combined, you really see a life of blessedness or happiness. And again, we'll define those terms biblically here in a second. But the main point for this morning is that if we meditate and adorate on God, we will become blessed. And yes, adorate is a word for all of those out there. Uh, talked with Aaron about this, and he said it wasn't. But if you go to Scrabble.net, you will find adorate in the register. I also updated Wikipedia last night. Uh, just kidding. It was already there. It's a verb. Adorate's a verb. means worship. But these two things are really the, the, the aim of the sermon here and the picture for us of what the psalmists for ages have said, you got to know these two things. And so we're going to know them this morning. More than that, Psalm 1 teaches us how to meditate. That's the first point. 
Psalm 2 teaches us how to adorate. That's the second point. And when we put those together, we see that, uh, that these two psalms not just teach us those things, but they actually give us a picture. They help us give us a picture of what happiness or blessedness looks like. So let's get into it. Psalm 1 begins, how happy or how blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So right out of the gate, Psalm 1 slows us down. It slows us down. It speaks of two paths. So there's some contemplation required here for your own life where you think, well, which path am I on? There's two paths here, righteous and the wicked. More than that, the author starts to talk about trees and streams. These are things that are not fast. These are things that are slow. One of my uh, favorite ministry events I ever did when I was in student ministry years ago was a tubing event down to go uh, tubing in Texas on a river. And we had Psalm 1 printed off, laminated, and all the students and everybody that was on it just had it as a necklace. And the whole way, three hours, were just meditating on Psalm 1. Thinking about the, the stream, the river that we're in, thinking about the trees that are overshadowing us. It's really a great event. And uh, it just slows us down. We should recognize that we are not a slow people. I, I don't really know hardly anyone anymore that just slows down a whole lot. And this psalm says you've got to. You've got to slow down. I actually preached on these uh, passages three years and two months ago. And back then I was wondering what are all the things that get our attention, right? All the advertisements. And, and so three years and two months ago, the average person experienced 5,000 advertisements a day. 5,000. Buy this, go here, do that, all kinds of stuff. Today, the number for the average person is now 10,000. We are such a fast culture. Everything about us, it's very dispensable, consumeristic, and not slow. And so I, I don't think we can pass over this. As, as fast of a culture as we are, as much as we have going on in our lives and all the people and events and things that we have to do, when we hear these words written to people in an agrarian society that had to work for their food, that had, by our estimations, a much slower life, and then the psalmist comes to them and says, hey guys, you need to slow down. How much more so for us? I think we're at light speed compared to them in terms of the amount of things going on. And the amount, more than that, the amount of things that are trying to get our attention to be involved in. So Psalm 1 here slows us down. It says the first thing that you got to do, if you want to really be honest with God and honest with yourself, is start to meditate. Now, meditation here is not abstract. Meditation 
is very much a meditation on God's words. So we need to differentiate here between Easter and mainly Easter meditation, or really all other forms of meditation, and biblical or Christian meditation. Meditation from the uh, biblical sense is, is different because all Eastern meditation, which is prolific now, is a call to, to empty the mind. You sit in silence, you go in solitude somewhere, close your eyes, get your noise-canceling headphones on, whatever it is, you get to your silent place, and then you empty your mind. And the goal of emptying your mind is then to have nothing, and you reach a state of nirvana or some kind of peaceful plateau of existence where nothing exists, you don't matter, nothing matters, nothing. That is not the biblical view of meditation. What we see here, rather, is that the biblical view of meditation is a call not to empty the mind, but to fill the mind with God's words. And we have a lot of help here because uh, it's a little harder to see in this translation. But in verse 2, instead, his delight is on the Lord's instruction. Another way to say that is on the law of the Lord, capital L-A-W, meaning this is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So when you're thinking about what you fill your mind with, the psalmist says you fill your mind with the first five books of the Bible. There's no guesswork here. And this is something that you see repeated all through the Psalms is that they're always recapitulating the early five books of the Bible, talking about God's promise and creation and who he is and his people and his redemption for his people again and again and again. So we need to meditate, which makes us slow down. We need to meditate not on what other people say, not on what the culture says, but on God's word. I think out of all of the spiritual disciplines, I was reflecting on this, there's a bunch, you know. Uh, Zach mentioned generosity, that's one. Service, that's another. Then there's the other kind of word-centered things. You know, there's prayer, there's silence, there's solitude, memorization, uh, which is really meditation. Uh, out of all of them, I think this one is the hardest because it requires so much consistency. You can get away and pray for five minutes. It's good. We all need it. You can read reams of scripture. Meditation and memorization are different. I don't have this on the screen, but Charles Spurgeon, the infamous prince of preachers, would often preach this way. One sentence was his whole sermon. And he would just start talking, (laughs) applying all these other Bible verses to it. He says this, talking about reading the Bible. Some people like to read so many chapters every day. I would not dissuade them from the practice, but I would rather lay my soul soaking in half a dozen verses all day than I would, as it were, rinse my hands in several chapters. You see, Spurgeon, he lived this, and he knew it's so good. I mean, he's a preacher. He's the best preacher by many people's estimations. But the thing that really provided the fuel for his ministry and his counsel was not reading reams and reams, but just saying, how happy is the one? Happy. What does it mean to be happy? Meditating on it. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? How do I compare my life with his blessed life? 
and you take and you chew on it, the, the word in Hebrew is actually hagah, and it means, um, it, it means meditate, but um, if you're ever around any Orthodox Jews, you will see them practicing a hagah, um, meaning they're just mumbling to themselves, going over a psalter. So it would be, happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stay in the pathway of sinners. It's an underlying meditation, an underlying mumble, if you will. So that's what we're called to do here in Psalm 1. Center our minds on God's word. And if we slow down and if we set our minds on God's word and if we memorize and meditate here, then we find we become like the, the person here in verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Another way to say that is that if you're somebody who does this consistently, then you are somebody who has poise. Meditating on the scriptures affords us poise. Poise is another way of saying you're not going to get knocked over. You know what ballasts are for a boat? Big heavy things that you put them in cars to. And the whole point is, if, if you put them in the right place in the hole, then whenever the waves come, however hard the waves are, it's not going to capsize the boat. It's not going to keel over. And that's the point for this psalm, is to say, when you meditate, you become a person of substance. You become a person in life that when the news hits you, you get the phone call. I've got bad news. She's not going to make it. Or when someone comes to you and says, you know, I just can't stand you. You infuriate me. All the little things you do, just, I hate you. You're not upended by that kind of stuff in life. It can hit you. And you don't respond with just anger and fighting. And then you don't respond just in turmoil and despair. Rather, you respond saying, what has God said? Who does God say I am? What does God desire for my life? And it centers you. You get poise. You become a people with poise. And we need that. We desperately need that in our society. If we do not meditate on God's word, then we may show that we are really chaff. That's the other implication here. I won't go through the rest of Psalm 1, but there's the image of the mighty oak tree or the cypress, the one planted by the streams of water. It's immovable, continual health, evergreen. And then you have this picture of the, the wicked. There's, there's only two categories here, righteous and wicked. And the wicked person is compared to not a tree, but chaff. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the, the flaky part of the popcorn that gets stuck in your teeth. That's what chaff is. You hate it. Everyone hates it. And it burns up like that. In an agrarian society, the, the picture for this is that um, come harvest time, all the weed is thrown into a, a central kind of stone area or pathway, and then it's beaten, and then you take something called a winnowing fork, and you shove it into the wheat or the grain, and you toss it up, and at night, the uh, cool evening air comes by and, and, and has a strong breeze and just moves, just flows all of the chaff out of the wheat because there's no substance to it. It just floats on by. And the end of Psalm 1 here says, the people who do not meditate then are like that. There's no substance to your life. Don't you want to be a people like this? 
that has substance? I certainly do. So that's Psalm 1 on meditation. We need meditation to become people of substance. And I encourage you later on, take this model for Psalm 1 and just do it. Sit down. Meditate on Psalm 1. Memorize it. And see if that doesn't begin to change the way that you think about you, about other people, about the world events. It will change you. We must learn to go to, in other words, the garden of meditation. Categorically, there's different kinds of psalms. This is a garden psalm, technically. It's one that you would take as you walk through a garden, just looking at the trees, looking at the birds, looking at creation, and saying, it's like that. God provides for me like that. Jesus saying, look at the sparrows. Look at the lilies. Garden meditation. But there's a second thing that we see here in Psalm 2, and that's not just uh, to be a, a person whose life is blessed and full and happy, not just meditation, but adoration. So we see Psalm 2 tells us how to adorate. This is the second gate we must walk through. So Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. This psalm is so incredibly different. Every time I read through the psalms, I hit Psalm 2, and I just want to skip over it because it's so shocking, especially if you slow down in Psalm 1, you hit Psalm 2, and then you're like, what in the world? I just changed scenes entirely. Yes, you did. Psalm 1 is all about a garden meditation on the law of the Lord and how good it is to be in his presence. Psalm 2, however, is not a garden psalm. It is a royal psalm. It is a psalm of enthronement. It is a coronation psalm. It is a psalm of victory. And it may not sound like victory to us, but that is because the opening lines have us in it. See, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Adoration here in this psalm confesses. It confesses that we are a part of the nations of the earth that rebel against God and his good authority. Every single one of us. Now, this psalm is pretty rough. There's points in here, you know, towards the end where it says that the sun will shatter the nations to pieces, break them apart. But the interesting thing here is that the Israelites, who would be memorizing this and certainly who wrote it, are a part of this nation. What Psalm 2 does not begin saying is, why do the nations accept Israel rage? That's not how God's talking. All of them, all of us, 100%. Why do the nations, every single one of us, rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then there's a strata given. It's not just every single person on a lower side of society, but the higher end, kings of the earth and rulers. They conspire against him. The interesting thing here 
One of the reasons that Psalm 1 and 2 go together is because the word for plot, that the people's plot in vain, is the exact same word for meditation. Haga. Same word. So where you have the righteous person meditating on the law, the Lord, on God's word, and he's full of delight, he loves it, contrast with that this, this picture of any other person in the world, everyone who's ever lived, meditating on evil, plotting. How do I get rid of this God? How do I just live a life on my own? How do I do what I want to do? You see, every single one of us fall into Psalm 2. And what is God's answer to this? You see, we see that the adoration, the worship that God is due here is at first confessing that we just say to God, yes, this is true. Some of you may have heard or uh, think somehow that, that confession is just saying something you've done wrong. I think that's part of it. Biblically, confession is not just saying what you've done wrong. It is agreeing with God that you have done something wrong. You see, God knows everything. He sees everything. Anything that you have done or will do that is evil, he knows. So when we confess and we tell God what we've done wrong, it's not like we're surprising God. It's not like God says, oh, wow, I forgot about that one. You know, man, I really didn't think that person was going to do that. He knows. So in confession, we agree with God about what he already knows, that we are desperately sick and evil and we need him. We are opposed to him. And you may not feel that way, but this is the way that God is saying that we are. People who meditate on evil. But adoration then from that point not only just confesses and and says the way that we are to God, agrees with it, but then submits. How do you feel when someone in your life comes to you and says, you know what, I know I did wrong. And, like, what next? You're, you're, you're looking for something else, right? It's not enough to just say that you did something wrong. You're seeking some kind of forgiveness, some kind of restitution. And how does God respond to the nations of the earth here? In verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. So God's response to evil in the world, generally, we could say, is God is going to, or he has, set up a king that will hold every single person accountable for everything that they have ever done, said, or thought. The nations of the earth will be held accountable, including you and me. This is, it's not just a a lighthearted thing that God does. You notice he laughs? God's laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. You think that your little human coalition can do something? You think that you can escape judgment? Let me install my king, my son, and he will deal with you. Now, when we read this, it's, it's uh, unmistakable for us about who the psalmist is talking about, isn't it? That Jesus is the son of the Father. He's the one that is set in place to rule all nations. 
And he's also the one that we have to pay homage to. In verse 12, pay homage to the son or he will be angry with you and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. There's an enormous amount of submission here. You see, Psalm 1 slows us down. We're not ready for Psalm 2. We have to get our mindset first. And once they're set, we read Psalm 2 and we say, yes, I am that way. Not only am I, am I that way, Father, please give me mercy. There's a submission involved. There's adoration involved. But notice that this adoration, it kind of goes both ways. It, it comes from people who say, yes, you are my king. And it comes from people who say, yes, you are the king. God will be worshiped. It's like you could say from Psalm 2 that the king of the universe will be worshiped. That is a solid reality. He will be adored. He will be worshiped either as we accept him or he will be worshiped as we reject him. God will be worshiped. The son will be paid homage. And that may be hard for us, hard reality, but it's only hard if you are against him, isn't it? If you're somebody who's behind this king, what does it give you? Hope. It gives us hope in a number of different ways. If you are, if you are on the other side of this army and this king that's coming, you should be absolutely terrified because there is no escape. None. Zero. Ever. But if you're behind him and you are his subject, all of that power is now aimed at protecting you. How incredible. How incredible, how kind. All who take refuge in him are happy. Again, another way that we see Psalm Psalm 1 and 2 connected, ending with happiness or blessedness. Who's the person that's happy? The person that's happy is the person who meditates on the law of the Lord and the person that knows he's going to do it. He's going to save me. He's going to make all things right. I have submitted myself to him, and he will be the one to make all things right. I think there's a really strong uh, implication for us here in regards to the cultural moment that we're in. Justice is a tremendous topic these days. Not so much so in the early 2000s, somewhat here and there, but now justice is everywhere. Everybody wants justice. Talking about the Me Too movement. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. We're talking about all kinds of stuff. Justice. The incredible thing about Psalm 2, especially for an ancient Israelite here who's under oppression, is to say, if God is the judge, I don't have to be. Isn't that freeing? Meditating on Psalm 2 gives you your place in life and paying homage to the Son and being a part of his kingdom then says, I don't have to be the one to hold people accountable. I don't have to be the one to make people pay. And maybe sometimes in life people do reconcile with you. They they confess, they admit, they seek forgiveness, reconciliation, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes you just get horribly wounded. And some of us just carry that wound for the rest of our life, stewing over it, 
bitterness, or acting out, vengefulness. I'm going to make them pay. Because of the gospel, we don't have to do that. We know that we are a part of the nations of the earth, and we also know God is going to hold every single person accountable. I do not have to be the one to do it. There's something incredibly freeing about that, incredibly freeing. So Psalm 1 teaches us to think, to meditate on God's word. Psalm 2 teaches us how to adorate, how to turn to God and say, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you put these two things together, we arrive at this place now where we have seen some indications of what blessedness or happiness looks like. And I'll, uh, I'll put some of these together for you. You see, Psalm 1 asks a question. Who is righteous? Psalm 2 answers, God's son is righteous. Psalm 1 asks, who is wicked? Psalm 2, we are all wicked. Psalm 1, we should meditate on the word of God. Psalm 2, we meditate on rebellion against God. Psalm 1, God will judge the wicked. Psalm 2, God's son will judge the wicked. Psalm 1, blessed are the righteous. Psalm 2, blessed are those who hide in the sun. When we start to put these things together, we see there is a very clear answer for what it means to be blessed or have a blessed life or a happy life. And it is not superficial in the least. It is the person who hides, identifies, lives in, abides with the son, the king. There's a New Testament scholar, one of my previous professors, fantastic guy. He, uh, he worked a lot on translating this word, blessed. The word is ashir, and it has a clear correlation in the New Testament as well. And he says this about the word, happiness. He says, continuing in the ashir wisdom tradition, that means anytime that word shows up in the, in the scriptures, Old Testament, it's going to say, this is wisdom literature. You need to listen to me. This is advice for life. Continuing in that tradition, Jesus begins his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. So have in mind blessedness, happiness, human flourishing. All three of those are synonyms. He is making an appeal and casting an inspiring vision, even as the Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah do, for what true well-being looks like in God's coming kingdom. As Scott McKnight notes in his discussion on the Beatitudes, the entire history of philosophy of the good old, of the good life, and the late modern theory of happiness is at work when one says, blessed are. You see, in Psalm 1, by saying blessed or happy, it may well include some things that we would say, yeah, hashtag blessed, right? I got a boat, got a vacation home, got lots of money, got my health. Sure, why not? It, in, it includes all that, but it is not only that. It is not only that. You see, Jesus begins here his Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon Jesus ever gave. How does he begin? Blessed, same word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Do you know what all of those have in common? Those are all people that we would say are not living the blessed life. Poor people. God can't be blessing you because you don't have anything. Jesus, in his first sermon, takes this idea and turns it on his head to say, you may think you know what blessedness is about, but let me tell you, it's different. Why is it different? Because if you could be blessed, hypothetically, just join me here, thought experiment. If you could have a blessed life and have nothing at all, could you be blessed in any other situation? Yes. You see, the people at the bottom are the people that Jesus is talking about. And if you can be blessed in that environment, you don't need the house. You don't need the boat. You don't need the clothes. You don't need your health. You have him. And Jesus, as he's talking, continues in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles or nations. Sounds like Psalm 2. How do you pray? Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus, Jesus is going through Psalm 1 and 2 with his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. This is not new material. But what Jesus does, he takes the material and says, but there's a point for this, though. And he says, I'm the point. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross and he pays the debt for sinners, these rebellious nations, what does he say on the cross, most excruciating moment of his life, actually far more than we could even understand because not only is he suffering all the physical ramifications of the crucifixion, he's being cut off from the Father, something we can't even map our minds around. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22, running it through his mind, mumbling, haga, haga. More than that, the very last words that Jesus says that we have recorded in Luke 23 on the cross are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's worshiping, adoration. If we go to Psalm 1 and we say, you know what? That's the righteous person. That's what I need to do. Psalm 2 cuts you off at the knees and says, yeah, you can't do that. You're one of these people. But Jesus comes and says, I know you're one of those people. So I'm going to do the things you can't do so that by me, you would have life. You would have a blessed life. And we look at Jesus, there's so many different ways to see this. In his temptation in Matthew 4, when he goes out into the wilderness, what does he do? He's quoting Deuteronomy at the devil, the Torah. He's he's living this out on our behalf. So this morning, maybe you come and you say, you know what? I'm horrible at this. I am horrible at meditating. I have never actually uh, memorized scripture at all. I I can't tell you two verses. There's great comfort here for you. Comfort to try. Grace to try. Hope. There's hope for you in the Christian life because we know how the story ends. 
and we see that Jesus is the blessed one. He is what blessedness looks like. Every time we see him, blessedness. And I'll just close by, by pointing out one more place that this shows up for us. You see, we become the blessed, most happy people in all the world when we believe in Jesus. And that doesn't stop. In Revelation, Revelation 22, Psalm 1 is a garden psalm, a picture of a garden. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm, coronation psalm, picture of a throne. In Revelation 22, these two images come together with a throne in the midst of a garden. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you are not good at meditating or adorating, the Lord is the one who will see that you do it. He's the one that provides the grace. He's the one that speaks. He's the one that we, we can't meditate unless he provides the words to meditate on. We can't worship unless he's the one that says, I am who you were made to worship. He has already reached out. He has already begun with you. So if you have not believed in him, I encourage you, meditate, adorate. We know how the story ends. And we know if you believe in Jesus, what you will be doing for eternity. These two things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not only told us what to do, Father, but you have completely enabled us to do it through your son. That is, he has gone through us. He is our exemplar. He's our model. But more than that, he's our brother. And you have adopted us into your family, called us children of the living God, sons and daughters, by your good grace, by the cross. Lord, so we ask that um, in, our, in our weakness here, in our inexperience, God, you would make us a people that are a people of substance, that are a people of hope, and that can extend this hope to the rest of the world. We ask in your son's name, amen.